The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. Um, I invite you to turn to Psalm 43. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew backs in front of you, it's page 470. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take one um, of these Bibles as a gift from us. So Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. A couple of quick things before we turn to Psalm 43. First, uh, today is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day. Okay. Um, And today is the day that you were supposed to bring back, and if you didn't, you should feel a deep, heavy guilt right now. Um, Just joking. Uh, You should have brought back your Alternatives Pregnancy Center baby bottle, um, unless you needed it and started using it. Um, uh, We have been collecting money. Uh, for uh, supporting this ministry in our city. Um, And so if you have brought it back this week, uh, underneath the Love 5280, the table there, you can set your bottle there. Um, If you forgot to bring it back, you left this morning your home and you left it there on the kitchen counter, forgot to bring it with you, it's totally fine. Um, It's just a $300 fine. Um, You can just slide that on the top of the bottle and then bring it at some point this week or next um, and place it on the table. Joking. So... Um, But please bring it back. Uh, We want to support that ministry well. I I do want to say one more word uh, about what what took place in South Carolina um, this this week, uh, beyond even what Joel said. Um, As you look at the pages of the New Testament, um, particularly the book of Galatians, and um, as we see the the church expanding in its mission in the book of Acts, you really see two um, intertwined problems that that in a lot of ways is the, the reason why we have much of the New Testament. Um, the, the two problems that, that the church is constantly trying to address is a kind of works-based righteousness, this belief that if I obey the law, if I, um, if I do the right things, then God will accept me. The church is, is needing to confront this at almost every single turn. And at every single turn, one of the ways in which that kind of self-righteousness, that, that way of kind of um, uh, works-based righteousness kind of rears its ugly head again and again and again in the pages of the New Testament is in the form of, oddly enough, racism. I say this to you um, because there's a danger as, as this story dominates the media. As we sit here in Denver, Colorado, in a predominantly white congregation, um, there, there's two, two, two dangers right now. 
Um, one, you can think it's the fringe crazies in South Carolina. If you're from South Carolina, I apologize. Um, the fringe crazies in South Carolina who, who are, are, are racist and are doing these things, but we're here past the problem of racism, and, and we, can, um, we can get on past this kind of crazy fringe issue that rears its head socially um, in, in the history of our country. But it's been here from the beginning. Please hear that. It's been there from the very beginning. This isn't a weird problem that arose because of the slave trade in the 1800s. It's something that's been with the church from day one of its existence. And it's easy for us to begin to think that's a problem over there and for them that has nothing to do with us because we don't wake up and, and we don't gather in this church building with the fear that someone's going to come in with a gun to kill us simply because of our skin color. But we don't have to think about the implications and all of the questions that would arise with just that simple problem that exists. And so my plea for us as a church is, is twofold in the light of this problem called racism. But racism is a damnable heresy. It is an act of utter high treason against our God. You know that. And not just the kind of racism that carries a gun into a church, but the kind of subtle racism in which um, we begin to presume or subtly even unconsciously believe um, that 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 our race is normal, that our race is kind of the baseline um, for society and for culture and for godliness. It is a damnable heresy. And my prayer for us is twofold. One, that we would search our hearts for any at all, any indication at all of of any measure of self-righteousness, be it moral, be it racial, be it whatever it is, any sense that we've, we've somehow earned something before God. And to remind ourselves again and again and again that the gospel comes, that Paul brings the gospel to bear on the issue of racism and the issue of self-righteousness again and again and again in the same way. We all stand condemned by our sin and we all, every single one of us, need grace and need mercy for rescue. That there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That that what has occurred in South Carolina is not over there for them. It is brothers and sisters who suffer. And we're called to weep with those who weep, to suffer with those who suffer. So, So that we would examine our hearts and we would enter into mourning and suffering and rage. should be enraged by what happened this week. Your brothers and sisters were gunned down because their skin color was different. And then that we would plead with God that in his mercy he would come. That he would bring the gospel to bear on every issue in human life. If there would be a day 
in which we would no longer look at one another as black or white or Hispanic or Asian, but as brothers and sisters redeemed by our Father. So let's pray. And so God, we say, come. In the face of death and violence and hatred, we say, come. In the face of bigotry and heresy and self-righteousness and divisions, we say, come. 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 Make all things new. Come. Amen. I met Jake my freshman year in college. Um, I had uh, come down with some sort of strange disease in which um, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, um, almost every single day, at least Monday through Friday, I got extremely tired. Um, And and so uh, I uh, was in my freshman year I'm in college. Um, I just so happened that at at exactly two o'clock every day, it was just this odd, horrifying coincidence in which every day at two o'clock, when in which I got sleepy and tired, every day at two o'clock, I was also assigned to take a class called chemistry. Um, And this class called chemistry was a horrific, awful, terrible thing um, in which the lecturer was really, really gifted at making people fall asleep. And so um, I was trying to find a remedy for this problem. And the remedy I came up with was um, if I could sneak away, um, and instead of going to class, um, I could sneak away into the athletic lounge. Um, and if I could find a way into the athletic lounge, which the coaches had wisely left locked, left the doors to that, that thing locked um, prior to the end of classes every day, if I could find a way to get into that room, um, then I could, I could solve the problem of both chemistry and time. I could go into this lounge, which was dark and very cave-like, and I could lay on this beautiful, nice leather couch, and I could put my feet up, and I could drink Gatorade, and I could fall asleep, um, and I could both experience chemistry as the Gatorade re-energized my body, and I could rest and, and resolve the problem of my sleepiness. And so um, I found a way in which I could lodge the door um, with a, a, a folded piece of paper in which the latch would not catch, and so it would look like it was closed and flush, and then yet you could pull on it and still get in. Um, and uh, I was a very smart guy. I didn't need to take chemistry. Um, it's more into physics. And so uh, I, I snuck over to the locker room. I opened the door. Um, it was dark. And I noticed I, I, I noticed I was not alone in this room. Walked in. Um, and there is uh, a, a linebacker on the football team. Um, again, a freshman just like me. I'm sitting on the floor. And as I approached him, I found that Jake was crying. I was faced immediately with this crisis. Do I come and accomplish the mission for which I've um, pursued and actually go and ignore my crying, this guy, I don't know him really, um, and uh, he probably wants to be left alone really, and, um, and, and go and sleep, or do I engage him and start asking what's wrong? And so I asked him what was wrong um, and sat down, and what ensued was the beginnings um, of a friendship, a friendship that was a really, really hard one, a friendship that I, I don't think I really understood um, I, I sat with Jake, and I, and I discovered um, a, a, a freshman just like me um, who, who was struggling through his freshman year, 
just like me, um, who, who wanted nothing more than to, to, leave, to, um, to leave this school, to find a different school, and to go home. And, and, and as we began to talk, um, I realized that, that one of the things um, that most kind of characterized Jake's perception of his circumstances, his situation, is that he felt trapped. Um, he, he'd been raised in a good home, a home which um, his parents um, celebrated him, loved him. He was raised in a small town. He was kind of the, the, the football hero of that small town. Um, and he was celebrated when he decided um, to, to attend this college and play football at this college. He'd, he'd been in the newspaper. They'd celebrate him all over the town. And, and he'd come to this school, and he found himself struggling in every possible way. He was struggling academically. He was struggling relationally. He didn't feel like he had any friends. Um, I, I, he actually confessed to me. I was the first person he felt like he'd actually talked to um, since he'd arrived at this school. He was struggling on the football field. Everything that he'd always been successful at, everything he'd always achieved at, everything that people had celebrated about Jake, suddenly had all just kind of fallen by the wayside. He was a, a, a seeming failure at everything he was trying to do. And, and, and all he wanted to do was leave, to go somewhere else. He hated the pre- pressure that he was under, but he didn't feel like he could leave. You see, his, his deepest fear, even more than actually failing, was disappointing his parents, being a disappointment to his friends, his neighbors, his family. And, and so he was trapped in this place where he didn't feel like he could move forward at school. He didn't feel like he could move forward on the football field. And he sure didn't think he could leave the school and go home because on all accounts, any way he chose, he felt like he was sure to either fail or disappoint someone or worse, do both. So you can see where this conversation got really, really frustrating. As I would, I would come in and try to logically explain, hey, let's come up with some next steps for you. You can actually, um, you can unlike me, go to class. And if you go to class, then you can actually maybe get some decent grades. Um, you, you can work out. You can do better on the football field. Um, you can do these things. And, and every time he came back with, with a very clear response, um, a very hopeless response, that there's no way that would work. There's no way this would work. He's already going to fail this class and this class for sure because he hasn't been there enough. He's missed too many test grades. The professor's already told him he's going to fail out and um, that there's no way he's going to pass those courses. I'd say, okay, well, Hey, it's not the end of the world. Just resign, leave. I mean, go home. I'm sure your parents, you just apologize to your parents and you can find another path forward. But that was terrifying to him. So afternoon, after afternoon, after afternoon, I sat down and had the same frustrating, same despairing conversation with Jake. The sense that his whole identity had been built on his ability to achieve and in the light of that achievement, be accepted, be loved, be cared for. And underneath it all was this dominating fear which terrified him and left him with a sense that I have no idea where to go or what to do. Psalm 43 is the continuation of Psalm 42. Most scholars believe originally they were written as one long psalm and then um, later split into two different psalms. At the heart of this psalm seems to be a man despairing of life itself, marked by mourning, marked by darkness, marked by thirst, marked by exposure. He doesn't know where to go. We don't have... 
uh, really many indicators at all of what are the actual circumstances that David seems to be facing in these two Psalms. We don't know um, what's actually happening. We don't know who these oppressors are, what kind of persecution he seems to be facing, uh, why he's crying out for vindication. Um, but, but running throughout both of these Psalms is this sense that, that, that he is keenly aware that God seems to be absent from him, um, that he is thirsty, he longs to experience the presence of God. He longs to experience the vindication of God. He longs to know again the nearness of this God and his presence and his goodness and his beauty. But all he can see around him is darkness and mourning and despair. And then as we turn to chapter 43, there is this moment that's haunted me for the last two weeks. As I've meditated on this song, as I've tried to think about and wrestle with, what does it mean to pray this psalm? What does it mean to enter into um, David's suffering? What does it mean to, to have our hearts even resonate with the things that David asks for in this psalm? And I found this question hanging over these two chapters uh, like a shadow that is absolutely inescapable. It's a weight that drags um, everything in these psalms into the, 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 the immediacy of our own experiences, every single one of our experiences. But listen for the question. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Do you hear the question? Why have you rejected me? I think if you clear through everything else David has said in these two chapters... All of his varying complaints, all of his uh, varying protests to God, his pleading with God for help. If you begin to separate and distill it all, and when it, when it comes down to it, this is the question. Uh, the question that haunts David more, more than anything else in these two songs. Why have you rejected me? Here is David at his most exposed. Here is David's deepest, darkest, most primal fear. Here is David naked. No more hiding, no more pretending, no more rearranging circumstances and trying to make things suit him, and no more trying to pretend like things will get better and things are fine. Here's David at the very bottom of his despair. Why have you rejected me? And if we're honest, if we can permit ourselves to be honest, Here's our deepest, darkest, most primal fear as well. 
will I be rejected? Or worse, am I already rejected? Oh, we cover it over with lies. Oh, we're great. We're absolutely great at filling our lives with achievement, finding some justification that proves that we're good enough, we're lovable enough, um, we're, we're pure enough, we're wise enough, we're holy enough. Um, and, and take your pick, man. People, um, people will choose um, something they're particularly good at or something that they're wired for in particular and, and prove themselves again and again and again. Hey, look, I, I can be successful enough in this job. I can be a good enough dad. I can be a good enough spouse. I can be a good enough friend. I can, I can come up and offer the right amount of counsel. I can be loving enough. I can do enough. Um, but all of it is this vain, restless attempt to prove to ourselves again and again and again, I won't be rejected. I won't be rejected. I won't be rejected. I won't be rejected. This question dominates our lives. Um, I remember in second grade, it was the very first time they ever did We Pick Teams. And it was Red Rover. And so I can even explain to myself how stupid this is right now as I tell you this story. But I remember it was Red Rover, Red Rover. I remember they split up teams and Michael Saltzman, um, one, of my, one of my closest friends growing up. Um, and, and, then, uh, and then Ryan, I don't remember his last name, um, but I remember he had blonde hair and freckles and he was mean. And so um, they had Michael and they had Ryan. Those were the two team captains. Um, and they began to select teams. And they selected everybody. I wasn't the athletic specimen that I am now. Um, at that point in second grade, uh, I was more of a scrawny little kid. And um, so they began picking teams left and right and left and right and left and right and left and right. And, and, and you've all been there, right? That silly moment, like you can remember back to childhood when you're just like, Oh, pick me. Don't let me have the embarrassment of being the last one picked. And sure enough, even with Michael, my closest friend in the world, I'm going to call him um, and, and let him know, um, I was picked last. And it's silly and it's stupid. But, but somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, and our hearts longed to be accepted. Longed to be loved, it began to flee with all our might from rejection. I, I mean, see it in my kids' faces almost every single day. Last night, <laughs> they do something wrong, like accidentally shove a kid off the trampoline. They turn immediately and look to my face. And the look in their face that they're searching for something. It's not out of fear of discipline. It's not out of fear that they're, um, they're going to get in trouble or I'm going to get really angry at them or something terrible is going to happen to them. Or they're going to be grounded. It's never about discipline. The look in their eyes it is always this question. Why or will you reject me? Why men will spend their whole lives destroying their family, destroying relationships on their careers. 
That's why men and women will be enslaved to broken, unhealthy, devastating relationships. It's why Jake sat on that floor paralyzed, having no idea what to do next. You see, you can pretend for so long, you can wear the mask, you can work hard enough and and try to build up enough of this myth that I can achieve enough, I can exalt myself enough, I can be liked enough, I can be wise enough. I mean, you can do that for so long, but sometimes, sometimes, please hear this rightly, in God's kindness, he lets everything come crashing down on your head. And you realize that the places where you thought you would find approval and and acceptance and love and a justification for your existence, it all just comes crashing down. And, And you can't pretend anymore. You can't work hard enough anymore. And you find yourselves in the pit of despair naked and exposed for who you are. And you cry out in that moment, why have you rejected me? Have you been there? Have you felt that kind of exposure? that kind of despondency? Have you been bombarded by all the things that come with that? Fear, anxiety, despair, anger? This sudden awareness that, um, that, that you can no longer, man, um, exalt yourself and pride yourself as you, um, as you become particularly gifted at examining the, the foibles and the failures of other people and how you're at least better than them, um, how, how you can no longer um, kind of wade into um, your own judgment of other people, how you can no longer wade into, hey, well, at least this person loves me. You find yourself with nothing. Well, what do you do? David prays two specific prayers. One filling out and informing us of the first. First, he begins in verse one. He says, vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against the ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. He asks specifically, right off the bat here in verse one of chapter 43, vindicate me. Uh, the idea here is, is um, it's the exact same concept that we see, um, that we saw played out in the book of Revelation again and again and again. This idea um, that, that David um, stands in a law court exposed. Um, that, that whatever's happened, charges have been brought, um, enemies have, have laid charges against who he is. Um, um, but whatever the particular circumstances, we don't know. But he stands in the court of law before the judge, and he is completely exposed. There, there's nowhere else to hide. There, there's no other way that he could justify himself. So he pleads with God, clothe me. Clothe me in a white robe. Vindicate me against all of these charges. Clear me of my despondency. Take away 
hopelessness, take away the darkness. Oh, make me able to see again. Make me able to sing again. He pleads with God that God would vindicate him, that he would declare to him his love, his assurance, that he's been forgiven, that he's been washed, that he's been declared righteous. Vindicate me, O God. Deliver me from these circumstances. Deliver me from this despondency. Deliver me from this darkness. Be a refuge to me. And then beginning in verse 3, he begins to spell out what that will look like. How will this God deliver him and vindicate him and then lead him? So look with me at verse 3. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. I'm going to turn the page. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So he begins with this petition, send out your light and your truth, and let, let that light, let your light and your truth lead me. So we need to understand, as he's pleading with God from this place of despair, as he's pleading with God from this place of despondency, as he's pleading with God from this, this primal, terrifying realization, this, this, this sense that God has abandoned him and rejected him. He pleads with him to send his light and his truth. What is, what is light and truth? What are we asking God for if we're praying with David from this place Send out your light and your truth. What are we actually asking for? So, so the word light, let's start there. Um, this word that, that's translated for us by the ESV is light. It is used several different times throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's used um, throughout the Psalter. And it is um, not simply this, this, this idea of cognitive awareness. That, that's how I, I was at first reading it, and then I said, well, I probably shouldn't assume that. Let's go figure out how this word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, particularly elsewhere within the Psalms. Um, and so I looked up everywhere that that particular word is used. Um, and here's the interesting thing I found. This word is not kind of a cognitive awareness. It's not like, hey, I'm in a dark room, and I need to know... Um, that there's a path and how to get down that path and how to avoid the rocks and the, um, the logs that are laying across the path. And so give me some light so I can see that and avoid it. That's not, that's not what this word means. The, the word is always attached in very specific ways to the notion of God's steadfast love or his covenant love. Um, and so um, over and over and over again, the Psalms, they will report to us, they will declare, they will celebrate the fact that God um, has has steadfast love for his people. It's a description of, it's a, um, it's a kind of love in which, God, um, in which God has bound himself to his people, much as a husband binds himself to his wife. That he is, um, that he has, he, his love for us is not, he kind of sits at a distance and he says, hey, Aaron, I love you, man. You're just cute over there in your blue shirt, your bald head. It's just beautiful. I just love you, love you. It's not the steadfast covenant love of God. 
No, the steadfast covenant love of God is that he takes us and he binds himself to us. And he says, you're mine. My name is set upon you. Um, I I love you. I mean, as it goes for you, so it goes for me. I'm bound to you. In other words, the least sentimental thing in the world. The, the, The steadfast love of God is his declaration that he has bound his name to us. So where's light? Over and over again as it describes this steadfast covenant love of God. When God sends out his light, when he causes his light to shine upon his people, it is the outpouring of that love in such a way that the people of God experience his covenant love. In other words, it's not simply that they know about it. It's not simply that, they've, that they read about it or they sing about it. No, it's that they, they step into a kind of experience of that love, an experience of God's paternal delight in his people. In other words, it's that moment when, as Hayes looks to me, and he's looking to me for, for assurance that I haven't rejected him. It's, it's, it's the steadfast love of God is me saying, hey, I would never reject you. I love you. I'm for you. That light is me going and, and expressing that love, expressing that delight, expressing that acceptance to him in such a way that he, he, he doesn't just know it. He hasn't just heard it with his ears, but he feels it. He experiences it. He's assured of it in the depths of his bones. Not just, hey, I love you. It's an embrace. It's assuring him by blessing him again. It's him seeing and experiencing not just the cognitive awareness that I delight in him, but him experiencing that delight. It's not just knowing that with the prophets that God sings over us to do us good, that he delights in us as a father. No, it's knowing it. It's feeling it. It's it's being rooted and grounded in the experience of the delight of God and his people. This word truth. Again, it's, it's wrapped up intimately with this idea of covenant love or steadfast love of God. Everywhere else, um, at least in the ESV, where this word is used in the Psalms, it's always translated faithfulness or truthfulness. And it is this idea, here's this God who has sworn himself to us, who has bound himself to us, who has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and then this word comes along and it is, the, it is the proof that he isn't a liar. That these aren't simply empty words. But that God has bound himself to us and he keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises in such a way that you can build your whole life on the assurance that he has spoken and he will act. So, So what is David pleading with God for from this place of despair and despondency and brokenness? He's saying, don't just say you love me. Don't just send me more words. Come and act 
Come and keep your promises. Come and don't just tell me you delight in me. Let me know that delight. Let me experience that delight. Don't let me just hear again that you love me, that you brought my forefathers out of Egypt, that you you formed a covenant with us. I get that. I've heard that. I've sung that. Um, Let me walk in the fullness of of who you are. Pour out that love. Pour out that delight. Cause that grace. Cause me to be immersed in that grace as you lavish it upon me. In the whole New Testament, whispers that this is precisely what God has given us by his spirit. Do do you remember Paul's words in Ephesians? Where he describes this great work of God, this covenant God who redeems us and rescues us and binds himself to us. What does he say? That he lavishes upon us grace upon grace. Oh, here is no kind of passive grace where God sits back and, and, and kind of looks the other way as we sin. No, this is grace that is active, that is being poured out. This is the delight of God towards his people. Him pouring it out like a waterfall that never ends just again and again and again. Him pouring out upon you his delight, his love, his grace, his mercy, his, his paternal delight in you, his children. Or that prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 where where Paul says I pray that you would comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge it's an interesting phrase right I mean here's here's a love that can be comprehended he's praying that we would comprehend it we would understand it We we, we would be able to see the contours of it and describe it and understand it and we can never understand it. What? Pray that you would know that which you can never know. Pray that you would comprehend that which you will never comprehend. What is he praying for? Literally in the text, he's praying that the Spirit of God would come and you would know something that goes far beyond knowledge. You wouldn't simply know that the God of the universe loves you. You would experience the fullness of his delight in you and his love for you. Think about what Jesus promised when he promised us the spirit of God. He says that the spirit will come and lead you into all truth. Not come and lecture you, not come and and merely teach you cognitively what's going on, although that's glorious. No, he'll lead you into it. You won't simply understand it. Oh, you'll understand it, but but you'll experience it, the fullness of it. See, here's the the whisper that runs through the whole New Testament. Here's the promise held out to us with the coming of the Spirit of God. And here's the thing that David is on his face in tears and in shambles and in utter brokenness and despair, pleading that God will give him. Send out your light and your truth. Don't just tell me you love me. Send send your spirit that I might know that which surpasses knowledge. Don't simply let me understand your grace. 
lavish me with it. Don't let me merely know that you've bound yourself to me in love. Send that love in a very existential way, in a very experiential way to lead me. What David does in the depths of his despair and his despondency and his brokenness and his fear that he's been rejected is not pull up his bootstraps and try harder. It's not try to figure stuff out. No, he gets on his face and he begs God to come. And specifically, he begs God to come and communicate to him, not merely cognitively, but in every way imaginable, the love of God for him. What my son needed last night was not just a smile and a nice little assurance, hey buddy, I love you. You need to come and be enveloped in that love. You need to experience that love. He needed to be lavished with grace. And so do we. So do we. And then see where that love leads us. That they will bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. They'll lead us to God. And then specifically, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God. Here's the first place that love, the experience of that love is going to lead you. It's going to lead you to the altar. So the, the picture that David draws here is, here's the temple, and in the middle of the temple is the altar. And, and the love of God, um, the grace of God, the Spirit of God is going to lead David um, uh, away from being um, far away from the presence of God, into the presence of God, and specifically it's going to lead him to the altar. Now, now here's what happens at the altar. First, worship ha- happens at the altar. You lay down your life and you worship this God. But, but, but most importantly, that worship takes a particular kind of shape um, in which sacrifices happen at the altar. Things die at the altar. And when they die, it was a reminder over and over and over again to the people of God that their sins, all of them, would be atoned for. So the love of God comes and it will lead us again and again and again. In fact, I believe this is how you know it's the love of God and not just drummed up feelings. It will lead you again and again and again to the altar of God, specifically to the cross. And you will discover there not the promise that your sins will be dealt with, but the declaration in the blood of Jesus that they have been dealt with. They've been utterly dealt with. And then, in the light of the fact that there is nothing, nothing that stands against you, and there's nothing that stands between you and your God, notice how he says this, then I will go to God, my exceeding joy. I love that that word was included. Not enough of you do. He didn't just say, I will go to my joy. He says, I will go to my exceeding joy. Like, exceeding joy. Good joy. Okay, so, so here's the thing. We just went through the book of Revelation. And I'll admit it, it was hard. 
was a really hard book, right? Lots of bad stuff. It's all good stuff, but you know what I mean? Just hard stuff. But, but do you remember the banjos? A few, three months from now, you've forgotten everything about Revelation. Uh, you remember every time you're in a conversation, you can say, I have no idea. We, we, our pastor preached to it. I still don't know what he's talking about. But I remember this. They were harps, and they're not harps. Because he said they were banjos. Banjos. You do harps when you're joyful. You do, maybe. Uh, you do banjos when you're exceedingly joyful. Like you're dancing joyful. This is what David holds out. It may send out your light and your truth. Send out the, the experience of the fullness of your grace and your love and, and your delight in me as a father. And it's going to lead me. That, that kind of love is going to lead me to, to remember the, the glorious reality that my sins are forgiven. They're washed away in Jesus. And that you hold nothing against me. And that's going to lead me where? To banjos. Exceeding everlasting delight. That's what David asked for. And that's the only thing, the only thing that will overcome the deepest fear you have that you'll be rejected. Oh, that God would come. That his light and his truth would come and lead us. There's one last stanza. David then preaches to himself again. And he says this in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here's the difficult reality that in God's providence, oftentimes that prayer, that pleading, send out your light and truth, it doesn't come immediately. Sometimes it it doesn't come for weeks. Sometimes it doesn't come for months. Sometimes that dark night of the soul lasts for years. I read biographies this week of men for whom it lasted their whole lives. What do you do then? Uh, see, see, David, um, uh, there's no reason to believe that between verse 4 and 5, anything's changed for him. That, that, that God's actually answered that prayer. Yet. He's still pleading with God, send out your light and your truth. And then as he waits, what does he do? He says, he, he begins to preach to himself, hope in God, I will praise him. Hope in God, I will praise him. Hope in God, I will praise him. He is my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. Hope in God. What do you do? You wait. You wait and you preach to yourself and you surround yourselves with brothers and sisters and friends who will say it to you again and again and again. Hope in God, I will praise him. Hope in God, I will praise him. Hope in God, I will praise him. You wait. 
You wait and you hope. And you know God will lead you to your exceeding joy. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come now. I pray that you would come as light and truth. That you would come as blessedness and faithfulness. And you would lead us even now. You would lead us even now into the dwelling place of God. You'd lead us even now to the altar of God to taste again, to marvel again, to experience again the covenant love of the Father. Oh God, help us now to know that which exceeds knowledge, to experience now that which we can never fully explain, to find rest. In your name we pray, amen.